Hocassin Baptist Church presents Jesus of Suburbia, a five-part series taught by Pastor Rick Bino in the winter of 2008. The first message is entitled, WWJL. First, our scripture readings, and then, Pastor Rick. So we'll start with Amos chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 6 through 12. Amos 4, 6 through 12, and then we're going to turn over to Luke 12. Here's Amos 4, verse 6. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none, and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards. I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, O Israel. And because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Turn over to Luke 12. We'll start in verse 13. Luke twelve thirteen. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then Jesus said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, hmm, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up for things for himself, but is not rich toward God. W-W-J-L. Where would Jesus live? If Jesus were on earth today in his human form, if Jesus was walking among us today, where would he live? Would he live in your house? Would he live in my house? Would he live in, a, in the city? Would he live in a condo? An apartment, a townhouse, 
a nice colonial with a white picket fence, WWJL, where would Jesus live? Would he live in the suburbs? Where would Jesus live is a totally unfair question to ask. It's likely an unanswerable question as well. Now, if we look back at where Jesus actually lived, it doesn't help us very much at all. There were no suburbs in Jesus' time, at least no suburbs the way that we think of them today. There were smaller towns and there were larger cities. There might have been an, there was an outlying farm and a sort of a shepherd community here and there. But there were no groups of homes built 15 miles from any town or 40 or 100 miles from any town. No little group of homes with a sign out front that semi-reflected what used to be there. There was no sheep run at the time. There was no fig tree acres or the hills of Mount Gerizim in Jesus' time. As far as we know, Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth was a small town. There's different estimates of how large that town would have been. They think it was between somewhere between 150 people and 400 people. We might have been Jesus' town growing up. But once he started his ministry, Jesus, being an itinerant preacher, seems that he depended on the hospitality and the care of others to provide his home. His disciples, particularly some of his women followers, would care for him and his disciples as they traveled. Scripture seems to indicate, for instance, that the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus outside of Jerusalem and Bethany was a place where Jesus spent some time. The late singer and songwriter Rich Mullins meditates on this idea. He has a song entitled, You Did Not Have a Home. He writes this of Jesus. You did not have a home. There were places you visited frequently. You took off your shoes and you scratched your feet because you knew that the whole world belonged to the meek. You did not have a home. Birds have nests and foxes have dens, but the hope of the whole world rests on the shoulders of a homeless man. You had the shoulders of a homeless man. You did not have a home. And that verse... That, that song comes from a verse that Jesus himself said. Speaking of himself, Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So the question we must ask is probably not WWJL, where would Jesus live, but it is HWJL. How would Jesus live? Because in answering how Jesus lived, we can better discover how we ought to live. And perhaps by discovering how we ought to live, we can better learn where we should live, which may or may not be in the suburbs. But as it stands, 99% of you and me, 100% of me, 99% of you live in the suburbs. Between 1947 and 1951, America changed forever. We may not have recognized it at the time. But during these years, a visionary businessman, a government grant program, and a historical milestone intersected to form the world that most of us live in today. The man was Abraham Levitt, 
The government program was the GI Bill, and historical milestone was the end of World War II and the return of the troops. And the result was Levittown. Or should I say Levittowns, actually, because there was three of them, one in New York, one in New Jersey, one in Pennsylvania. And those, sub and those suburbs existed prior to Levittown's. Suburbia had never existed like this. This is Levittown, 1950. On Long Island, New York, the planned settlement was to be 4,000 homes, but it ballooned into what eventually became over 17,000 homes. It had its own schools, its own postal delivery, its own telephone system. And Levitt and Sons, during their peak, had such an efficient process that they were putting up 30 homes a day. And they were being instantly rented. Soon after, they began to sell the homes instead of just renting them. And they sold the ranch-style home for $7,990. That's $90 down and $58 a month. Levittown was one of the first and largest mass-produced suburbs, but it was a symbol of post-war suburbia, and it was the start of suburbia today. And although Levittown provided affordable houses, it was criticized at the time. The houses looked a lot the same. So it was criticized for its homogeneity, for its blandness, and for its racial exclusivity. The initial lease prohibited rental to non-whites. Today, Levittown actually sort of has a negative connotation of sort of this bland style of homes. But from these Levittowns, we end up with your neighborhood and with mine. You probably live in a larger house. Your neighborhood probably has more variety. And you're, it's unlikely. I'm taking a shot in the dark here. But it's unlikely your mortgage is, more, is $50, $58 a month. It's probably just a tad more than that. But yet, you're living in the suburbia that was launched in many ways by this Levittown world. And so you end up with subdivisions, and you end up with soccer leagues, you end up with your athletic clubs, you end up with your Lantana Squares and your Pike Creek shopping centers, and you end up with your Hokesson Baptist churches, a suburban church. So here we are, a product of suburbia ourselves. We are suburbanites. Now, I know, I know a few of you are not suburbanites. Some of you live in the city, some of you live in rural areas, but if you come to this church, you're very much influenced by suburbia because you drive through it to get here. And you shop somewhere, and it's likely in a suburban shopping center. Most of you probably don't go downtown. So even if you don't live in suburbia, you're greatly influenced by the suburban way of life. And what we're going to find is that suburbia is not just a bunch of semi-custom homes with close-by shopping. But suburbia is undergirded with a certain philosophy of life. A certain way of looking at the world is packaged for us in suburbia, and this philosophy is sold to us, and it is pushed on us everywhere we turn. I hold here in my hand one of the icons of suburbia. It's my credit card statement. You all have one, don't you? Most of you have more than one. This is Capital One. What's in your wallet? I want to read to you my credit card statement. 
Not the side with all the transactions, because that's not that interesting. But I want to read to you this side. Whether you knew it or not, the back of your credit card statement has a lot of little teeny tiny printing. And what this little teeny tiny printing is are the terms and conditions that you have agreed to in using this card. So let me read to you just a few of the terms and conditions. You, which is me, Rick, Rick Bino, Richard S., you will have a minimum grace period of 25 days without a finance charge on new purchases, new balance transfers, new special purchases, and new other charges if you pay your total new balance in accordance with the important notice for payments below, which I couldn't even find the important notice, so I'm worried about that. And in time for it to be credited to your next statement closing date, there is no grace period on cash advances and special transfers. In addition, there is no grace period on any transaction if you do not pay your new balance. Finance charge is calculated by multiplying the daily balance of each segment of your account by the corresponding daily periodic rates that have been previously disclosed to you. At the end of each day of the billing period, we will apply the daily, daily periodic rate for each segment of your account to the daily balance of each segment, which just means you better pay. That's how I interpret that. Now, I know that lots of credit cards, they have, they'll give you a, a forgiveness of a, of a late fee, maybe, or maybe they'll give you a special lower periodic rate. But I would suppose, I didn't try it, but I'm pretty sure if I called Capital One, and I said, Capital One, you're in my wallet, but I'd like to uh, change the rules a little bit. I'd like to just pay you twice a year. But I don't really want to pay any finance charges or any late fees. So if you would just send me a bill in July and December, I promise I'll pay it. It's likely that the young person who on the other end of the phone would say, well, Mr. Bino, we appreciate your business. However, we're unable to do that because it violates the terms and conditions of the credit card agreement. Just like when you get a credit card, when you live in suburbia, you are presented with certain terms and conditions. Certain basic mandates are expected of you when you move to suburbia. And I would like to suggest to you that there are four basic belief systems, worldviews, perspectives of life that undergird and help build suburbia. And when you move into suburbia, these visions of the world are pressed upon you and insisted upon you. But the difference is we don't have to buy into them. But there's much pressure asking us to do so. So suburbia, I propose to you, is not built on semi-custom homes and just having a shopping center nearby, but it's built on a certain worldview that we as Christians need to be especially aware of. Here are the terms and conditions of suburbia. One, you will focus on competition, advancement, and achievement. Number two, you will characterize yourself as a consumer and will consistently accumulate material goods. Three, you will show a high regard for comfort and convenience. Number four, you will prioritize independence and protectiveness of yourself, your family, and your possessions. I present these, these four attitudes to you and propose that they undergird suburban living. 
And today and over the next month during our series of living in suburbia and Jesus in suburbia, we're going to sort of come at these different attitudes from a bunch of different ways. But at the start, I want to establish again that there's a difference between your credit card terms and conditions and these terms and conditions. And that is, you can live in suburbia and not buy in to the suburban terms and conditions. But it's difficult. It takes intentionality on your part. It takes wisdom on your part. It takes a consciousness on your part that says, I am not going to live by these terms and conditions. When you move into suburbia, there's no paper that you sign with these four things on it that says, now that you've lived in suburbia, you're going to become a monster consumer? Sign the dotted line and agree to that. I'm not saying you must agree to these terms. I'm just saying that most of us do. Most of us live in suburbia, and we live by these conditions, even though we're not required to. So it will take some effort on our part to break away from them. It'll take some spiritual attention. And part of the reason that we, that we subscribe so easily to these terms and conditions is that just like the pushy sales rep that calls you or the, the, the mailings that you constantly get in your suburban mailbox, we are so pushed with these mindsets that we become convinced that we have no other choice but to live by them. We, we are convinced that there is no other choice. And we're pushed so much that we eventually begin to believe, we actually believe we do need the newest stuff. We actually begin to believe we need more stuff. It is so often pushed on us that we really become convinced that if our child isn't in enough activities, then that we are a bad parent. We begin to be convinced of it. We begin to be really convinced that we should move into the next bigger house as soon as we can afford to take on the additional debt. Especially if the neighborhood's going in a bad direction in our minds, so to speak. And soon we become convinced that this is just the way it is and that we have to live this way. You're probably familiar with the saying, keeping up with the Joneses. Have you heard of this before? Let me give you context. You buy a new truck. It's hip and trendy. And you jokingly say, well, you know, I'm just trying to keep up with the Joneses. And though it's said as a joke, it's usually more true than we'd like to admit. And it reveals a way in which we have bought into the suburban terms of, condition, terms of agreement. Because keeping up with the Joneses shows the spirit of advancement. What matters is that I keep up. It matters that I keep up with these neighbors, with these Joneses that I've probably never even met. But I've got to keep up. It also usually shows the spirit of consumption because we're usually trying to keep up with the Joneses and material things. But the conditions of sur suburban living sometimes go beyond that. I have an article here from Yahoo News. Let me read it to you. It's short. The notion that the first will be last doesn't seem to bother some folks. When Apple's revolutionary iPhone hit the market in June 2007, it sold for $599. Just a few weeks later, the price was reduced to $399.
While some who bought the iPhone at the original price were outraged, others would have paid any price to be the first to own the gadget. One customer explained, if they told me at the outset that the iPhone would be $200 cheaper the next day, I would have thought about it for a second and still bought it. Consumers who purchase new technology as soon as it is available relish the prestige of taking a new toy home before anybody else. Despite the fact that electronics become more reliable in their second and third generations and retail prices always decrease over time, early adopters are undeterred. The pleasure of owning a rare product far outweighs the financial sacrifice. In the words of one satisfied iPhone owner, even if it works one day, it's worth it. For many, it's not the item itself, but the distinction of ownership that's attractive. Such is life in a land of plenty. Listen to this. Not only do we want more, we also want it first. It's no longer enough to keep up with the Joneses. We want to be the Joneses. Suburbia is selling you something. Are you convinced of it? Suburbia is selling you something. And it's more than just a product. It's selling you a mindset. It's selling you a worldview. And it wants you to think that you have to adopt it. It wants you to think that you have to live a life based on accumulation and achievement and comfort and safety. But I'm here to tell you that these terms and conditions are optional. You do not need to live a life of consumption. You do not need to live a life that's based on your personal achievement and advancement. You do not need to live a life that rotates around your own safety, and you do not need to live a life that's all about your comfort and convenience. You do not need to live that way. As Christians, I think we need to resist the suburban terms and conditions. It represents a challenge to us, but the the result of not resisting is that when you walk through suburbia, Christians look just like everybody else. We've bought just as much. We spend just as much. We're just as concerned, overly concerned with our comfort as everybody else. And therefore, Christians end up making no difference at all. So over the next few weeks, I hope to compel you to look more fully at the fine print of the suburban terms and conditions and challenge us all to live in our suburban homes in a way that is more God-honoring, more redemptive, and more radical. And maybe in the midst of this discussion, you'll find how you are to serve God and where you are to serve God, because I'm not going into this with the assumption that all of us are supposed to serve God in suburban America. There are those of us who may be called to the city or to rural America or to another country to serve him. Well, in order to do this, we're going to look at some passages from Amos each week and some scripture from and readings from Jesus each week to help us to understand the suburbia that we live in and the challenge of living in it as Christians. As we discovered from the passages I read earlier, we have the option of agreeing to or not agreeing to these terms and conditions of suburbia, but I would like to suggest that we are subject, that we are subject to a greater set of terms and conditions set out to us by God.
If you are a human being, and in taking a quick glance, okay, I think we're covered. If you are a human being, you are subject to the terms and conditions of the Creator God. Terms such as the wages of sin is death, salvation is in Christ alone, love your neighbor, be holy, serve the needy. These are terms and conditions that God has set upon you as a human being. Now, you might say, wait a minute, I didn't agree to that contract. I never signed off on that one. And there's a sense where, well, you're right. It's sort of a contract you're born into, but think about it in the way that you were born into your family. I have two wonderful children. They were born into my family. And as soon as they were born in my family, as they began to grow, they became subject to terms and conditions that they had no say in. You know why? You've all said it. Because it's my house. Right? And when you live in my house, you follow my rules. Students, you've heard this, haven't you? When you live in my house, you follow my rules. Well, the fact of the matter is, as being a creation of the living God, living on his created world, you live in God's house. And you best follow his rules. That's what Amos is saying in this passage. Israel not only had been born into God's house, but they had essentially signed on the dotted line that they would live in a covenant relationship with God. And they were doing a terrible job of it. They were rejecting holy living. They weren't using their resources wisely. They weren't caring for the needy. They weren't seeking justice. And if you remember from our passage, God tries to draw them back in. And he tries to draw them back in using some harsh tactics. Punishments. He said, I brought famine. And I brought sickness. And I brought, and I brought thirst. Your crops failed. But each time the response of Israel remained the same. Yet you have not returned to me. I took away your water, yet you have not returned to me. I took away your food, yet you have not returned to me. I brought you sickness and death, and you still have not returned to me. Five times, Jesus, God says, I brought something, and you have not returned to me. You have not returned to me. You have not returned to me. And so the conclusion, prepare to meet your God. This wasn't a pep talk. I don't know if we want to say that God threatens, but this is about as close as you might want to come. When God says, I tried to call you in, 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 I tried to call you in five times, yet you've rejected me five times, therefore, prepare to meet your God. God describes himself in 4.13, the very next verse. He says, I am the one who formed the mountains, I created the winds, I reveal the thoughts to man, I turn dawn into darkness and tread the high places of the earth. God describes himself as the creator God. God describes himself as the ruler. To use our earlier terminology, God says, this is my house. You are living in my house. Are you ready to meet the head of the household? Prepare to meet your God. Jesus' parable in Luke 12 ends on a very similar note, doesn't it? God says, you fool, you fool, this very day your life will be 
demanded of you. Now, the rich man, the rich man's done a lot of preparing, hasn't he? He's a prepared guy. He's prepared his investments. He's prepared his portfolio. He's prepared his retirement. He's prepared the plans to make bigger barns. He's done a lot of preparing. And this kind of preparation would fit perfectly in the terms and conditions of suburbia. But this man has not prepared to meet his God. You know, whenever we read about a really, really wealthy person dying, especially if we read it on the news and not really connected to us, we kind of say stuff like, I wonder how much he left behind. Right? I wonder how much she left. Well, guess what? I'm going to tell you the answer. They left all of it. We all leave the same thing. We all leave all of it when it comes to material possessions and goods. You're going to leave it all behind. And therefore, Jesus says, you're, full. You, you're a fool because you've been rich in stuff, but you've not been rich towards God. In a different words, but the same idea. Prepare to meet your God. I can't answer where would Jesus live, but I can tell you how Jesus would live. He would live by the terms and conditions set by God. He would live in a way that he lived in a way and would live in a way that loves people, not competes with them. He would live in a way that avoids accumulation of materials and is rich towards God. He would live in a way that prioritizes the gospel over convenience, and he would understand that any kind of soul-searching and soul-winning requires risk. Suburban living will press upon you to live quite unlike how Jesus would live. But we all need to consider how little good it will do when we meet our God. And the best we can say for ourselves is I had a nice diversified portfolio and I redid my kitchen. We, we need to be able, because of our life on earth, stand before God and say, I saw that I was a sinner. And I saw the valuelessness of all that was around me and I turned God to you and I look to your son, Jesus Christ, for my salvation. And I live my life around your terms and conditions. At which God will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's bow together. I want to give you a few moments to ponder the challenge from Scripture this morning. Some of you have spent way too much time preparing for everything in your life except for your soul. And for the rich man, his soul was demanded of him at that very moment. And, the, and, and, and though he was, he was wealthy and savvy in business and in monetary gain, he was unprepared to meet God. And if that is you, I offer you this morning the opportunity to take some steps to prepare to meet your God. It starts with an initial decision to enter into the kingdom of God, Christ. 
And you do this by admitting that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness. That you lack the spiritual priority. And that this lack of spiritual priority, it's not just some miscalculation on your part, but it is rebellion against the head of the household, against the Creator God. You admit that you had angered God, but you acknowledge the grace of God through reconciliation that Jesus came to die and arise again and offer salvation and forgiveness for your rebellion against your God. If you have not done this, you are simply not ready to meet your God. And so I invite you to take a second now, if you need to, to talk to God about it. Others of you have made this initial step. But other than that, you have done way too little to prepare to meet your God. Your priorities are all out of whack, and you know it. You're preparing a lot of things, good things. But you've neglected your soul. And you know when you neglect the preparation of your soul and you over-prepare and are overly concerned with other, other things, with achievement and monetary gain and comfort, you weigh yourself down. You burden yourself. Whereas Jesus says his burden is light. The life of constant achievement is a life of burden. The life of constant accumulation is a life of burden. The life of constant comfort is a life of burden. The life of constant protection, self-protection, is a life of burden. I invite you to talk to God about your priorities and that he will push you to really see his terms and conditions and that you live your light, your life with the lightness of his burden. Jesus, we come to you today as individuals who get very confused about our priorities. We're, we're very prepared people. We prepare for work and for weddings and for graduations and birthday parties. We prepare for retirement, for our physical and financial futures. We prepare for so much, but Lord, we confess, I confess, we, pre we, we prepare too little to meet our God. Forgive us. Forgive us for, the very, for committing the very sins that you, you, you warn us against all through Scripture. Forgive us for our idolatry, for prioritizing things over you. We confess that we need your perspective to break through. Teach us to prioritize what is right and good. Teach us to prioritize simplicity and giving. Teach us to prioritize not being first to get out of that rat race of competition. And Lord, forgive us and teach us not to teach these things to our children, 
Teach us to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. Prepare us to meet you. In Jesus' name we pray.